0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we welcome back Todd Green religion professor and historian from Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. The last time that he was here on our show, he talked about Islamophobia. Now he has a book about that subject, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Todd Green. Dr. Green is Associate Professor of Religion at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. In 2010, Professor Green was invited by the Muslim Students Association to give a public lecture on the controversy surrounding the so-called Ground Zero Mosque in New York City. At the time, Green had been researching the controversies surrounding the construction of new mosques, Islamic Houses of Worship, in Europe. Since 2010, Professor Green's work has increasingly focused on the issues of prejudice against Muslims in Western countries, culminating in the publication of his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West, published by Fortress Press. Dr. Green and I first spoke back in 2012, and that interview is available online at our website, ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. Professor Todd Green, welcome back to Things Not Seen. David,
1: thanks for having me back.
0: In our earlier conversations and in your book, you define Islamophobia as hatred and hostility towards Muslims and the fear of Islam and Muslims and the discriminatory and exclusionary practices that result. And so as we begin this conversation, I wonder if you could flesh out that definition a little bit. What are we concretely talking about here in actual day-to-day politics and practice?
1: That definition has two ways of going at it. One of them is about attitudes. Uh, that people in the West, particularly in the majority, the non-Muslim majority, would have toward Muslims, or, or Islam as an inferior religion, as a religion that's prone to violence, uh, Muslims as a group of people toward whom discrimination should take place, it should be n- normalized, that there is some sort of inherent uh, clash of civilizations or cultures between Islam and the West. That's sort of what I mean by, by attitudes. Anyone who studies Islamophobia is not simply interested in what people are thinking about Muslims or what sort of anxiety they have. They want to sort of trace this into how this anxiety is actualized in uh, and, and ways that will exclude Muslims from the mainstream or, or result in discriminatory practices um, or, or worse. And so in this approach to Islamophobia, we're sort of interested in restrictions on freedom of religion, such as m- maybe restrictions on hijabs or burqas in France, inability for Muslims in Switzerland to build minarets. Um, it could be the, the wave of anti-Sharia legislation that has been uh, sweeping the United States since 2010 in Oklahoma, and now that a majority of states are, have been at least wrestling with this kind of legislation. It could be Muslims being targeted by law enforcement, um, FBI or the NIPD uh, or the NSA here in the United States when it comes to being uh, particularly prone to suspicion and there needs to be more surveillance, more infiltration of mosques and and communities and that sort of thing. And finally, David, we're even talking about violence against Muslims, hate crimes against Muslims, vandalism against mosques, and unfortunately, uh, uh, murders as well.
0: Well, and so thank you for giving us a little bit more about the concreteness of of what you mean when you say Islamophobia. And one example of Islamophobia, perhaps, that has been in the news recently has been the the recent Supreme Court decision around uh, Abercrombie and Fitch. And I wonder if if you have anything to give our, our listeners a little bit of background about what was going on there.
1: Well, it's, it's kind of a tricky case in some ways. It's, more, it's about uh, freedom of expression, freedom of religion in, in the workplace, and to what extent is it fair for an employer to prohibit, say, in this case, a, a young Muslim woman from wearing uh, certain kinds of dress or clothing that reflects her own religious convictions because it doesn't sort of coincide with the, uh, the company in question. In this case, it's, you know, it's a clothing company we're talking about. And many Muslims and Muslim uh, civil rights organizations in the United States were thrilled that decision, not not that they're trying to hammer or or, or, uh, come down too hard on companies in terms of wanting to create a certain ethos when it comes to their customers, but certain kinds of assumptions that are made about Muslims are oftentimes not sort of translated into other religious communities, and so that um, uh, a young Christian woman wanting to work for the same company wearing a cross or maybe wearing certain kinds of clothing wouldn't raise the same kind of attentions as, a, uh, a young Muslim woman who would want to work for this company but wear a hijab. Uh, and what we really had here was a company that was very anxious, I think at least, about uh, the kind of customers it was trying to attract and maybe not trying to scare them off with, with certain kinds of employees whose religious clothing uh, would have symbolized that they had this connection uh, with Islam, a religion that's generally feared and people have uh, at least a general degree of, of, of um, Suspicion or anxiety toward, and so so it was a it was a big decision. It was a big win, I think, for the Muslim American community uh, in the United States. But it also has sort of fed this larger conversation that we continue to have in the United States about uh, who's sort of accepted, who who's one of us, uh, and what ways, consciously and unconsciously, do we continue to discriminate against Muslims, and how can we uh, draw attention to that and call out that sort of prejudice and create workplaces and other in the public sphere where Muslims are more welcome.
0: And so our listeners are clear, when we're talking about this term hijab, what does that mean particularly?
1: Well, there are different kinds of uh, modest clothing that Muslims traditionally wear. Um, a hijab, for layperson's terms, is, is a, a headscarf um, that covers the head but leaves the, the face exposed, as opposed to, say, burqa or niqab that tends to cover almost the entire face, maybe or maybe not, leaving... An opening for the eyes. That garment is, or those two garments, niqabs and uh, burkas, are actually quite rare in the West. Uh, not many Muslim women wear those. But the hijab, covering your your um, your hair but leaving the face exposed, that's uh, a fairly common garment that you would find uh, Muslim women wearing.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Todd Green, associate professor of religion at Luther College. And we're speaking about his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. When we first spoke about Islamophobia in 2012, you had just begun working on these issues, lecturing and teaching on the subject and researching it. And now it's 2015, and you've just finished this book-length study of Islamophobia. And I'm wondering, what have you learned in this process over the past three years uh, that is maybe more or different from what we first talked about in 2012 regarding the subject of Islamophobia?
1: Well, there are several things that sort of uh, I've I've learned that have actually become to disturb me even more than maybe when we were first discussing in 2012. And some of this is the, the greater connections and the interconnections between what happens in Europe and what happens in the United States. That... This is, this is not something that's isolated to one sort of part of the West, um, uh, that there, this really is, is, a, is a massive Western problem. Uh, I, I've gotten much more in the past few years into learning about and sort of tracing the origins of what I call this Islamophobia industry, these anti-Muslim organizations and individuals who basically just make a living. Off of demonizing and dehumanizing Muslims, and just how far that goes, how, how uh, much influence these organizations have, how much money is, is raised and donated to these organizations to support their mission, uh, that's become probably one of the more disturbing things I've been learning as I've delved more deeply uh, into this topic as well. And I've despite wanting to believe that things are getting better, Uh, Every now and then, when I pause and sort of take stock of where are we right now in the United States, or where are they in Europe when it comes to Islamophobia and its its presence in the public sphere and what Muslims uh, are experiencing, it's hard not to conclude by most measures things are actually getting a bit worse for Muslims. That Islamophobia, really, since 2010, back with the uh, "quote-unquote" Ground Zero Mosque controversy, that that things have gotten much worse uh, in some cases for Muslims as opposed to better in many many other areas things are not getting better. And that, that's the big change, I think, in my thinking, is, is I, I'm probably a little bit more pessimistic today than I was three years ago.
0: You spoke a moment ago about this term the Islamophobia industry. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that and, and tell us what you mean.
1: Yeah, there's a group of people. They're, they're bloggers. They're, uh, some of them are far-right activists. They're, some of them have a little bit of background in the ac- academia, but most of them don't. But basically, this is this cadre of far-right uh, or right-wing scholars, but mostly bloggers, activists. In the case of Europe, we're really talking about some politicians as well, far-right parties, but even some of that here in the United States, whose career basically depends upon, or primarily depends upon, the de- dehumanizing or the demonizing of Muslims. Organizations and people we would not know about, and you and I would not be talking about today, if it weren't for their very public, uh, high-profile efforts to. Marginalize Muslims and to present Islam as some sort of great inherent existential threat to the West and everything that it values. And, and we're talking about people like Pamela Geller, uh, who was behind the event in Garland, Texas, been made in May, this Draw Muhammad uh, contest. And before that, she really came to fame in 2010 with the, being the, the blogger who really put the, the Park 51 controversy on the map. I mean, she's the one who sort of really got behind this effort to um, uh, call out the, the community trying to build this Islamic center and to make it into public debate that it became, but we wouldn't know who she is if it weren't for her efforts to call out Islam and call out Muslims as uh, sort of inherently opposed to the West and to freedom of speech and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and there is a whole, co- you know, cadre of people uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, including, yeah, as I said, some politicians who, who uh, particularly in Europe far-right politicians like builders Wilders, who, whose whole career is based on demonizing uh, immigrants and Muslims, which in European context, those are roughly synonymous terms.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Todd Green, Associate Professor of Religion at Luther College, about his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. Dr. Green has been speaking and writing about these issues since 2010. We had an interview with Dr. Green in 2012. It's available on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Todd Green. He's a professor of history in the Department of Religion at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. And he's the author of The Fear of Islam, an Uh, introduction to Islamophobia in the West. What I'm hearing you saying sounds as if you're accusing these bloggers and others of kind of a cynical exploitation of the issue of Islamophobia. Is that really the characterization that you're wanting to put forward, that this is a very calculated attempt to boost uh, blog hits and to boost popularity? Or is it also in your view that some of this criticism actually comes from a genuine place of fear or a genuine place of concern?
1: You know, uh, and I'm not a psychologist, so getting inside the minds of some of the folks I'm talking about would be difficult. Uh, But I can say this much, David. uh, Their criticisms, by and large, are very irrational. Hardly ever are they rooted in any concrete data. Hardly ever do they express any really sort of grounded understanding of Islam in terms of its political, its cultural context, its historical context, uh, that sort of thing. I do believe, by and large, this is exploitation. I I certainly do not think Pamela Geller is someone we should be praising for her great intellectual endeavors in terms of critiquing Islam. Uh, There's very little substance there. Um, This is not me saying that Islam can't be criticized or Muslims should be, uh, you know, sort of uh, taken out of the equation when it comes to critical debates about religion. I I don't believe that at all. And in the book I wrote, I, I make very clear up front that uh, Islamophobia is not simply to be equated with criticizing Islam. Um, but uh, So that's why, one of the reasons why I don't call people Islamophobes just because they might have some anxiety. I, I, I reserve that term uh, really to people like Pamela Geller, Robert Spencer, Hugh Wilders, Daniel Pipes, and a number of others, again, who I do think exploit anxieties, manufacture fear, really, for, for personal profit, for political gain, to sell books, to, to uh, increase traffic to websites, yeah, basically to have a career and to maintain some sort of power
0: and influence.
1: And in the post-911 world, they're able to do it. But I am not suggesting that everyone who criticizes Islam or everyone who might be critical of Muslims for holding a certain position uh, are somehow Islamophobic or exploitive. But this particular group of people, absolutely. I, I do not think they're engaged in a legitimate enterprise when it comes to criticizing uh, Islam. Uh, the, the, their their arguments uh, make no intellectual sense, no rational sense. But this is not an industry driven by reason. Uh, it's an industry that, that preys on anxiety and fear.
0: Well, you write in your book that Islamophobia constitutes one of the most acceptable forms of bigotry in the West today. And if I'm hearing you correctly in, in your answer, when we're talking about Islamophobia, we're not talking about anxiety about Islam that might, that might come to a general person who is informed about the religion. But rather, if I'm hearing you correctly, this particular group of people is reducing Islam to a series of stereotypes and is sort of picking the low-hanging fruit of bigotry here in the West and using the, the simplification of Islam to attack that simplified Islam. That's why your characterization is that this is an exploitative exercise. Have I heard you correctly? Yeah,
1: absolutely. They, they, they are, they're basically cherry-picking, if you will, uh, you know, data or in most cases just stories they might hear, stories in Egypt, stories in Yemen, it doesn't matter, um, that are involve maybe the most extreme fringes of the, the global Muslim community and present those as this is, this is basically what it means to be Muslim. This is normal. Or they make sweeping characterizations or engage in what I call essentializing. You know, that Muslims, the 1.6 billion Muslim population in the world, uh, all share some sort of common essence or trait. Uh, so someone like Ayan Hershey Ali would, would say that Islam at its core is a violent ideology, right? So she, she will constantly make statements like that as opposed to, to analyzing what do 1.6 billion people. Actually believe, which you know for a scholar like me, the short answer is they believe a lot of different things when it comes to violence, or Hershey Ali might say that uh, you know Islam is inherently oppressive toward women it's inherently, it inherently encourages violence towards women, it tries to keep women subjugated, but someone like Hershey Ali never sort of looks you know concretely at the diverse experiences that Muslim women have. She wants to sort of lump all Muslim women and all the experiences they have into one category, and then overlook the diversity, overlook uh, the achievements that Muslim women have made, overlook the, the agency that they might have, um, the, the, the kinds of education that they might get in some Middle Eastern countries, and that sort of thing. So, so there, there's no nuance to the Islamophobia industry. Nuance doesn't sell, David.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dault. We're speaking today with Todd Green, Associate Professor of Religion at Luther College, about his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. Dr. Green has been speaking and writing about these issues since 2010. A moment ago, you said that complexity and nuance don't sell. And I'd like to take a few minutes and sort of walk through some of the the more trenchant criticisms of Islam as a cultural force here in the West and just allow you the the opportunity to bring some nuance to this discussion. Uh, So let me start by, by saying that some critics would argue that because of our liberal political values, and for example, we could say tolerance and equality would be these liberal political values, that progressives are rushing to include Muslims in Western culture but the critics would say that when the Muslims arrive, they don't actually share these liberal values and would actually actively undermine these liberal values of tolerance and equality and, and women's rights uh, as their numbers increase. And so my, my questions would be first of all, is this an accurate criticism and what would you offer as a response?
1: It's a problematic criticism, David, because, again, it lumps all Muslims into one category. Muslims collectively, they will be a threat to liberal values, to to, to tolerance, and that sort of thing. When in fact, you know, there are diverse communities of Muslims in the United States and Canada and, and Western Europe who have very diverse views on many of these, these issues. Uh, you know, I'm not someone who's going to say you are not going to ever find a Muslim in the United States who doesn't, have, um, you know, some sympathy for ISIS. Yeah, know, that Muslims do exist in the West uh, that have such sympathies. Or that there are, aren't Muslims in the West that sometimes uh, have uh, patriarchal views when it comes to women. Of course, of course there are. You know, So, you know, I, I'm not someone who denies such things, but I, I'm very wary of arguments about, let's include or not include a group of people, because we sort of lump them all into one category, and therefore we think we can draw conclusions about what they do and don't believe. That, again, is Sort of the building block of Islamophobia, uh, the idea that Islam is, is monolithic, that that all Muslims are monolithic, that if I've met one Muslim, I've met them all, uh, and they must all hold the same viewpoints, and that's not true. So my one of my responses to that, I've got a couple. One is I'm actually reminded of um, Prime Minister David Cameron in Britain, who talks about the, the, this need for muscular liberalism, and it has raised the debate among Muslims in Britain about um, is there a place in a 21st century western democracy uh, for enough diversity to where you could also embrace people Muslim or, or otherwise who might have some illiberal views for example maybe on on same-sex marriage. Is, is there still a place for for such people irrespective of their religious background or are we really not talking about diversity anymore uh, and I think that's a, that's a valid debate to, to get into when it comes to what what is it we we even mean by that uh, the, the second thing I'd have to say is that there are so many instances in the past couple of decades of really Muslims sort of pushing Western governments and nations and political figures when it comes to what their limits of toleration really are. You know, uh, that, that the case that comes to mind most readily is the Danish cartoon controversy. Uh, or, yeah, the, I mean, it was a very problematic debate. It, it had global ramifications. Uh, but you had a group of Muslim ambassadors write to the, uh, the prime minister. At, at the time, basically saying, you know, having a newspaper portray the Prophet Muhammad in this way does not represent Danish values of tolerance, right? Uh, so, And we're seeing that in the United States now with these Draw Muhammad cartoon contests kind of being reduced to, these are all, this is all about freedom of expression, but, but, but toleration of religious diversity, I like to think, is also a very important Western value. And oftentimes I'm encountering Muslims are the ones who are making that argument better Certainly, much better than Pamela Geller, but frankly, much better than much of the media, in my opinion, as the way they sort of frame these stories as being only about freedom of, of expression, when in fact they're they're um, much more complicated than that. But uh, you know, the, the other thing I have to say is that you know those kind of criticisms that you had, you, you mention just don't address concrete realities on the ground. A, a common criticism I hear, for example, is that Islam doesn't promote women's education, uh, that it, it sort of encourages women to be subjugated, you know, men are the ones who get an education, men are the ones who go out into the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. So if we're going to reform Islam, we need to really focus on trying to to challenge this religion and this community to promote women's education better. And then, David, I look at the actual statistics in the United States of Muslim women who have a college degree or higher. Forty-three percent of Muslim women in the U.S. have a college degree or, or a higher education degree compared to 29% of the overall population of women. They possess college degrees or higher education degrees at higher rates than almost all women in the population, including Protestant and Catholic women. The only religious category I can think of where the percentage is higher would be Jewish women. Uh, now, when I say that to audiences, they're usually stunned. That The stereotype is Muslim women are submissive, they stay at home, they don't get an education. The reality is quite the opposite. Based on those statistics, the conversation you and I should be having right now is, how do we liberate all those Protestant women and make sure they get a better education? Now, most people would say, well, that's ridiculous, right? But if we're just going on statistics, uh, if we're actually going on data, if we're actually going on concretely what is happening in the country. We actually see that Muslim women do not fall into that stereotype. So there's a, there's a stereotype behind these criticisms, and then there is the actual realities. And my job as a scholar is to look at the realities, not to not to sugarcoat them, but also to be realistic about what we're talking about, what, what assumptions are being made, and to call attention to assumptions that are rooted in a bias or a bigotry that don't actually reflect the concrete circumstances on the ground.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Todd Green, associate professor of religion at Luther College, about his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. Dr. Green has been speaking and writing about these issues since 2010. We had an interview with Dr. Green in 2012. It's available on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking with Todd Green, Associate Professor of Religion at Luther College, about his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. Dr. Green has been speaking and writing about these issues since 2010. We had an interview with Dr. Green in 2012, which is available on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Let me then shift to a second criticism and, and get your reaction to that, because other critics would claim that Islam is actually not a religion at all, but rather is simply a political movement that is bent on some sort of uh, either undermining or taking over of, of Western political processes. And therefore, those that make this criticism would argue that we should not afford Muslims First Amendment protections that cover practices of religion. So how would you respond to that criticism?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very uh, shady argument. Um, and really, what's going on there is the is, is the attempt to, to to make legitimate the discrimination against Muslims. You know, as, as it stands, the way the uh, the First Amendment is often interpreted, if a Muslim community wants to build a mosque, you know, by law that should be compared to the, the efforts of Christians to build a church or Jews to build a synagogue, right? It's a religious community wanting to build a house of worship, and if they follow all the Local zoning laws and other other uh, procedures that they must go through. You know, they should be able to build a mosque if they have the funds to do so. Uh-huh. Then you get some who would make the argument of no, let's not have allow Muslims to build a mosque here because they don't, they shouldn't benefit from uh, the First Amendment and free exercise of religion because this is not a religion. Uh, therefore, we should be able to discriminate against them because this is a really uh, about a, a political ideology bent on conquest. Mosques aren't really houses of worship, they're terrorist training centers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? This is not about concretely who Muslims are or how they understand themselves as uh, people who are religious, um, but these are efforts to sort of circumvent the First Amendment. The First Amendment makes it very difficult to, uh, to discriminate against Muslims based upon religion, but if you can categorize it as something else, uh, then this, this is your, your chance to make it very difficult for Muslims to who have the same freedoms and the same opportunities that other religious communities have. And David, I've seen this over in Europe too. This was the same argument in Switzerland used against Muslims
0: in the campaign
1: to ban minarets. And and for your audience, I I can explain briefly that minarets are are the towers usually attached to mosques. And in many Muslim-majority countries, this is where the call to prayer would be issued from. Uh, In in Europe, they're mostly ornamental. Uh, you You rarely would hear the call to prayer issued from a minaret in Europe. But in Switzerland, they were banned in 2009, and the political party that led that campaign to ban them, the Swiss People's Party, and, and their campaign to ban minarets, they made the case, or one of the cases they made was that, well, we're not really dealing with a religion here. We're dealing with a political ideology bent on conquest, and, and, and to that extent, then minarets really aren't religious symbols, they're political symbols. And, and, and when you're making that case, what you're really trying to do is say, is say to the broader population, oh, by the way, if you think this is discrimination, don't think that. And this is not a religious community we're dealing with. So you're off the hook. And in the case of Switzerland, you know, you can go to the polls and vote against minarets and prohibiting Muslims to be able to build them and, and feel good that you haven't violated the Western commitment to freedom of religion.
0: Here in Chicago, my work takes me into the orbits of a great many evangelical organizations. And in speaking to them about Islam, oftentimes they are very welcoming of Muslims in the country because their intention is to evangelize them. And you you are a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're both, Let's let's own that here in this conversation. So in one sense, you know, we are under the Great Commission to evangelize. But I wonder how do you view both this desire on the part of some evangelicals to welcome Muslims to evangelize them that's the first question, and then the second question is, how do you view the Christian responsibility of evangelization uh, with regard to Muslim peoples?
1: Oh no, those are very good questions in, in many ways they' they're they're theological questions, right so, you know is, is you know is it a legitimate sort of enterprise for Christians to to engage in to try to convert people to the Christian tradition, whether they're Muslims or anyone else? I mean this is a question that can be directed at Muslims. Uh, or it can be, you know, really towards anyone that, uh, say, evangelical Christians might be wanting to evangelize. You know, uh, if we were talking about this more in a political or cultural sense, you know, my answer would probably be the same. I'm 100%, you know, for the right for evangelical Christians or any Christian to get out there in the marketplace of ideas and try to persuade people that they have a better way of viewing the world and, and, and... a better way of living in the world. Um, I would defend Muslims, too, you know, and when it comes to whatever a- uh, efforts they might have to proselytize. And, and, and you certainly can encounter Muslims who will proselytize right back, you know, and, and you probably know that from some of your work. So um, so I certainly support the right. Theologically, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a, a whole set of literature on this in terms of the kind of theology we're engaged in, theologies of religious pluralism and how should Christians view people of other religious traditions, Muslim or otherwise? And I, I am not an exclusivist, so I'm not someone who believes that someone has to convert to and embrace the Christian religion uh, and be a follower of Jesus Christ in order to, quote unquote, be saved or to encounter the fullness of truth or anything along those lines. Um, so I, it's, it's, not, it's not an enterprise, personally, David, I would ever want to engage in, though I'm certainly supportive of the right of evangelical Christians to, to do so. Uh, in fact, when it comes to interfaith dialogue, David, I'm I'm much more wanting to encourage different religious traditions here in the United States to, to find ways of dialoguing that at least allows for the possibility that my my neighbor, uh, my religious neighbor, has something to teach me, uh, even if I even if I was someone who still held on to this notion that my religious tradition was was the best way. That's not how I, what I personally believe, but. But I think if you, if you go into uh, to interreligious engagement, and you're, you're solely rooted in this idea that the, the only benefit this person has to me is as someone, an object of conversion, as opposed to someone who might have something to teach me about the way to look at the world, or the way I understand myself, or who might have resources in their own religious tradition that can enhance the way I view my religious tradition.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking with Todd Green, Associate Professor of Religion at Luther College, about his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. Dr. Green has been speaking and writing about these issues since 2010. We had an interview with Dr. Green in 2012, which is available on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. In your book, you interview Marjorie Dove Kent, and she's the executive director for the organization Jews for Economic Justice, which is based in New York City. And in the course of that interview, she makes the statement that non-Muslims bear considerable responsibility in the battle against Islamophobia. So how can non-Muslims act as allies in this question?
1: Well, there's a variety of ways they can do that. Uh, and I, and I am a non-Muslim, right? So the first thing to do is to call it out when you encounter it, uh, which, of course, means we have to educate ourselves a bit more on what is Islamophobia, how does it manifest itself, what sort of uh, biases, explicit or, or implicit, are often uh, held by many people in the population or public figures or in the media when it comes to Islam. And that's a lot of why I wrote the book, um, is, is sort of to give an introduction to what Islamophobia is and how to to, to recognize it, and it, a lot of that's really directed toward non-Muslims, uh, so that they can they can know what they need to call out. So so that's the fir- the first thing to do. The larger question, though, is you know what is driving Islamophobia? What's the cause of the disease? And so therefore, diagnosing the sources of that really helps us get into what it, might the cure be. So um, uh, one one of the things that's probably most important, I think, David, and, and it's really next nicely to the previous set of questions you were asking about, you know, sort of interreligious engagement with Muslims, is we still have almost two-thirds of Americans in the non-Muslim majority who do not personally know a Muslim. There's several problems going on here when it comes to what's driving Islamophobia. One of them is the lack of personal relationships. The only Muslims many of us quote-unquote know are the Muslims we see on television or on the news or on CNN or Fox, and what we see there tends to be ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, right? And so they, they become sort of the stand-in for all of Islam and the 1.6 billion global Muslim population. And So one thing that we really need to do as non-Muslims to combat Islamophobia is build more bridges with Muslims and Muslim communities, establish more relationships with Muslims. I think when you have personal relationships, you can more easily break down those prejudices and those biases that do exist. You have some context then to make sense of, for example, ISIS. Right? Okay, well, what is ISIS doing? Is that sort of square with my uh, experience with the Muslims I know here in the United States? And the, the more that we know Muslims, the more that we can look at what's happening in, in Syria or Iraq and say, okay, that's, that's not resonating with my experience, and, and, and that we can, we can nuance this picture. Right? So calling out Islamophobia when we see it, establishing personal relationships with Muslims. Frankly, David, I, I would love to find way, better ways to educate the larger public about Islam in terms of, of just knowing a little bit about its history, its traditions, its scriptures. The you know, majority of Americans, according to most polls, don't know much about Islam or anything about Islam, right, other than what they see in the media. The media sort of fills that gap when it comes to uh, to our knowledge of, of Islam, and that's a problem. That's a huge problem, in my opinion, the media being our primary source of knowledge. The The final thing we can do is, is going to be the hardest, what I'm about to say right now. Those, those other things I think we can get... Pretty strategic when it comes to implementing sort of practices that can, can improve the situation, but the the third source of Islamophobia and, and the big picture is, is a political source. Right, um, we have a problem with imperialism. Uh, initially, European colonialism and imperialism, and now, in my opinion, um, uh, U.S. imperialism. A lot of the anxiety and fear of Muslims and Islam in modern history has been driven by imperial projects particularly in the Middle East, a part of the world that Western powers have been trying to control and have hegemony over politically and economically for a long time, uh, that there is almost always a tendency for an empire to need to demonize or dehumanize a people that you're trying to have control over. Uh, that's, this is how you garner support for the imperial project back at home. Now, we're engaging in a very different type of imperialism today in the United States than, say, France and Britain was engaged in the 19th century. Uh, but it is a, it is a kind of uh, of imperialism nonetheless, where we are trying to have control over the economic resources and the energy resources of many Muslim majority countries and And so the dehumanizing of Muslims sort of goes hand in hand with imperialism, creating far more problems uh, and, and burning more bridges than we're building.
0: This is things not seen. We're speaking with the author Todd Green. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Todd Green. He's the associate professor of religion at Luther College, and we're speaking about his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Well, you've traveled extensively in Europe and done a great deal of research actually on the ground in the European continent. And you've led also many study abroad trips with students uh, with courses focused on Islamic issues and Muslim issues in the European context. What are some of the similarities and differences between the European and American contexts with regard to Muslims and anti-Muslim sentiment?
1: The greatest similarity, David, between the, Europe and, say, the United States when it comes to what Muslims experience, I mean, you know, j- the, the general misgivings about Islam is sort of being at odds with Western values and Western commitments. I mean, that, that dialogue and discourse is there in Europe, just like it is here in the United States. Muslims are sort of being pr- you know, more prone to suspicion when it comes to not being loyal to their country. Maybe being prone to violence, the, the the counterterrorism sort of efforts that you encounter in Europe and the United States, they there actually are some similarities between the two. And and you know, Muslims as objects of suspicion, uh, Muslims having mosque infiltrated by uh, by counterterrorism people, by we uh, learning increasingly in the United States by informants. Um, you know, you know, there there is this idea that that Islam and Muslims on both sides of the Atlantic are always objects of suspicion. Uh, you know to hear Muslims in Britain or Germany or, or Sweden articulate that anxiety and to hear that in the United States, I mean, you, you're, it really is very similar sort of misgivings and experiences they have there. Um, some of the differences, particularly in terms of demographics with Muslims in, in, in Europe, uh, are a few. One, Muslim and immigrant it tends to be, again, largely synonymous terms. I'm not saying that's, that's actually accurate always, but there's this idea of thinking of all, almost all Muslims in Europe as immigrants. When in fact, there are many Muslims uh, in Europe today who, who, whose families have been there two or three generations. And, in fact, the problematic language of second-generation or third-generation Muslim or whatever, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's problematic language. At what point does, does, does a Muslim in Denmark just become a Dane, as opposed to why well, I'm a second-generation or he or she is a second-generation Muslim in Denmark, you know. That when, when Denmark is the only country they've ever known, they were born there and they were raised there and they were educated there and they worked there. Uh, they have a family there, um, so but but the larger discourse still sort of connects all Muslims with foreigners, um, and even though uh, and my students picked this up pretty quickly. Most of the Muslims we interact with, uh, they they were born and raised in these countries, right? So they're they're not foreigners as such. They're, you know, we got other issues of race and racism that might be at work where they might look foreign to white majority, but, but in terms of their home, uh, their, their home is Denmark. Their home is Belgium. It's, it's not Morocco. It's not Turkey. The other big ch- difference is, is um, the, the socioeconomic sort of status of Muslims in Europe, which I think exacerbates some of the tensions that exist in Europe. Um, Muslims in Europe tend to be much further down the socioeconomic ladder than they are in the United States. In the United States, Muslims tend to be quite well-educated, as well, if not better, educated than than the overall population. As we were just talking about a while ago, with Muslim women, um, they, they tend to work in either you know, in the middle class or upper middle class and have quote unquote white collar jobs. In Europe, this is very very much the opposite. Uh, they 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 tend to have much higher unemployment rates. Um, they're they're less educated than the overall population. That um, they they they, uh, they they struggle a lot more economically. And, and this sort of adds, I think, to the marginalization or feelings of marginalization and alienation that many Muslims in Europe have. And most polls sort of recognize that uh, many Muslims in Europe tend to have a much bleaker view of the future than Muslims in the United States have. Not because one experiences Islamophobia and the other does not, but, but in terms of what does the future hold, Muslims in the United States tend to be much more optimistic. And I, I personally think that the so- socioeconomic status of the two communities makes a big difference. The other thing I can add about uh, Muslims in the United States, David, is that, uh, you know, the, the, it's a very diverse community, but we oftentimes forget that African American Muslims are, are, make up uh, almost a third of the Muslim population of the United States, and the presence of Islam technically goes all the way back to, to slavery. Uh, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of slaves that were originally brought over uh, from, from West Africa uh, probably had a, a Muslim background. And so African-American Islam has a very particular role in this history of Islam in the United States uh, that's not quite there um, with Islam in Europe.
0: Have there been any situations that have arisen during your trips abroad that you'd like to tell us about? If there was a particular negative experience or a particular teaching moment that arose while you were there on the ground that sticks out for you?
1: You know... I think what, what always surprises my students, at least, and I've learned not to be so surprised by this anymore, but, you know, the, you know but my, for my students, oftentimes, you know, we're going all the way to Europe, right, to study this topic, but for most of them, this is the first time they've been to a mosque, any mosque, and for many of them, it's the first time they've interacted in any significant way with, with Muslims. And what's interesting is that, you know, in terms of negative experiences, there, you know, I can't think of any. The reason that's relevant, particularly to your question, is the perception uh, of Islam in Europe, particularly on this side of the Atlantic, is that you know they're, they're all, this is a very hostile population in Europe, and there are all these no-go zones. I don't know if you remember back in January when Steve Emerson got on, I think Fox, and said, uh, talked about all these no-go zones in Europe, that places you can't go because there are these Muslim enclaves. and. Birmingham, England has now almost become this completely Muslim city, and just you know, again, made-up stuff, right? And in, in what's interesting about my students when they hear news like that is that we are going to these very places, these no-go zones that we're told that we're not supposed to go to. Uh, the, you know, East London, Brick Lane, um, uh, uh, Rusengord and Malmö, Sweden, or uh, Norbu in, in Copenhagen. These are neighborhoods known for having high populations of Muslims and immigrants where tourists, Aren't supposed to go, right? This is not the tourist area, right? These are dangerous places, according to some more conservative commentators here in the United States and, and even some in, in Europe. Um, but we spend the bulk of our time in these neighborhoods, interacting with people who are engaged in all sorts of, of social work and uh, some activism, and uh, we always feel welcome. Um, we always experience a considerable hospitality. But um, we, we develop personal relationships, and we have never felt unsafe in any of these places. But again, the experience that we end up having gives us, gives my students particularly, an insight into, well, if we go to these very places that we're not supposed to go, they're called no-go zones, and experience all this hospitality, and then what's really driving that that discourse about no-go zones, about Muslim enclaves and ghettos, and 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 places where non-Muslim white people aren't supposed to venture into, uh, and um, and they start to to understand firsthand, really the bigger problems when it comes to what some in the West imagine to be uh, big problems in Europe when it comes to um, a place of Islam or Muslim communities, and then the realities on the ground, which are not that at all.
0: Well, Professor Todd Green, I always enjoy speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us again here on Things Not Seen.
1: Uh, David, thanks again for having me. I've enjoyed it as well.
0: Our guest today has been Todd Green. Dr. Green is Associate Professor of Religion at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. In 2010, Professor Green began lecturing on Islamic issues when he was invited by a Muslim students' organization to give a public lecture on the controversy surrounding the so-called Ground Zero Mosque in New York City. Professor Green's work has increasingly focused on issues of prejudice against Muslims in Western countries, culminating in the publication this year of his new book, The Fear of Islam, An Introduction to Islamophobia in the West, published by Forkers Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Adam Yaffe engineered the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock.